Good morning. It is truly a joy uh, and a blessing that God has given us this time to come together um, to meditate on who he is, what he's done for us, uh, and to be nourished upon his word. I'm a big fan of the standard three-point sermon. Uh, Sometimes I'll go with a four-point sermon. Every once in a while, I'll get really ambitious and go with a a nice biblical seven-point sermon. Uh, But today, I want us to just focus on one point. There are going to be many different areas of application for the point that we're going to, to be talking about today, but I want us to take some time to just unpack it and clearly see one principle uh, within the pages of our Bibles. And we're going to see that principle in the book of Job. So if your Bibles aren't already open there, if you want to turn to Job chapter 1, I, I've entitled this sermon, The Error of Job. And, and that title is intentionally vague. Because I, I want to try to take you on a journey through the first 10 chapters or so of the book of Job. And I don't want to tell you exactly where this journey is, is leading us up front. Um, what this one point is that we're building towards. Because I want you to take the time to, to just dig in and think deeply about the spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes in this book and kind of uncover the lesson and the application uh, for yourselves as we read through. So I I hope I've sufficiently piqued your interest, uh, your curiosity on what it is that we're going to be talking about here. But let's go ahead and start in Job chapter 1. And like I said, I want us to think deeply about the spiritual battle going on behind the scenes in this book. Uh, I was talking with Ben recently, and he shared that he has uh, recently read the, the Screw Tape Letters, which is a book written by C.S. Lewis, where Lewis envisions a senior demon writing letters of counsel and advice to his nephew, Screw Tape, uh, who is a junior demon working on tempting and corrupting this human uh, that he's been assigned to called The Patient. Uh, And while Luce's book is certainly a a work of fiction, uh, it gets us to pause and think a little more seriously about what tactics the devil and his angels may be using to entice us and draw us away from the Lord. And that's kind of the perspective that I want us to try to bring to uh, what we're going to read here in the book of Job. Uh, The first two chapters of Job uh, give us a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on in the spiritual realm, what it is that Satan is doing in this situation. And by the time we get to chapter 3, we, we no longer have that behind-the-scenes look, but Satan hasn't stopped working. And so what I want us to do is take that perspective of chapter 1 and 2 and carry it with us up through about the first 10 chapters of this book. So what are Satan's tactics uh, in his attack against Job. First of all, I think it might be helpful uh, to recognize that God presents Job to us at the beginning of the book, verse 1, as a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. In fact, once we get down to verse 8, we see uh, that God says there is no one else like him on earth. So this is not someone that Satan is going to be able to take it easy on. Uh, This is someone that Satan is going to need to bring out the big guns uh, against. If he's going to trip up Job, he's going to have to be more crafty, more subtle, more vicious in his attacks. And so whatever tactics we see Satan using here, whatever tactics we see having maybe the most success, 
we would do well to sit up and take note. So what are Satan's attacks? With Satan's attacks, we first see him attacking all that Job has, all his possessions, uh, his servants, even his family. Uh, when Satan claims that Job is only serving God out of self-interest, out of what he gets out of it, that God has put this hedge around Job, and if you take all that away, well, then Job's not going to serve you any longer. Look, look in chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And in the, the rest of chapter 1, we see Satan uh, initially in verse 14 and 15, um, taking away his 500 yoke of oxen, his 500 donkeys, and all of the servants attending to them are killed by the Sabians. And verse 16, 7,000 of his sheep and all the servants attending them are consumed with fire from heaven. And verse 17, 3,000 camels and all the servants attending to them are uh, taken or destroyed by the Chaldeans. And then finally, in verse 18 and 19, we see all 10 of his children are killed in one tragic blow. Uh, when a great wind comes and causes the house to fall upon them. And so all that Job has, all his possessions, all his servants, all his children are taken away. But in chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21, um, we see Job's response. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robes and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked, I have come from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Wow. Praise God. That's the heart that I want to have. Um, nothing in Job's life comes between him and his relationship with God. No possession, no earthly relationship is going to hold the key to his service to God or, or going to compete for the throne of his heart. He recognizes God as the giver of every good gift. And if God chooses to take all that away, let his will be done. Let him be glorified. Uh, Job says, I, I came into this world naked. I'm, I'm no less, uh, I have no less today than I had then. Uh, God still deserves my praise today as much as he always has. And so Satan's tactics fail. They don't work. We read there in verse 22, Job does not sin. He does not charge God with wrong. And so in chapter 2, we get to round 2, so to speak. Uh, and Satan attacks his flesh and bone. When God commends Job to Satan once again, we see in chapter 2, verse 4 uh, through 6, it says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Uh, so Satan is essentially saying, well, God, J Job is actually a lot more selfish than we thought he was. <laughs> he, he doesn't actually care as much about all those servants and those animals or even his children, uh, as long as he himself doesn't have to experience pain and suffering. Uh, then he'll be okay. Bring him lower than the day of his birth. Make life itself a burden, every day a torment to endure, and then he'll turn against God. 
Well, verse 7 and 8, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. But Satan doesn't even stop there. In verse 9, he he failed the first time. He wants to make sure he doesn't fail the second time. He uses yet another tactic. It says in verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Here, Job's closest companion on earth uh, has joined in the fight against him. Become a messenger of Satan, encouraging Job to just give up, give in, and let it be over with once and for all. You know, I, I try to think what it would be like to hear Aaron say something like that to me. That would break my heart. Um, if, if even my own wife had given up on God, what strength would I have left to endure? But Job fortifies himself in the Lord. Job defends God and does not sin with his lips. In verse 10, uh, we read, uh, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so once again, Satan's attack fails. Job does not curse God. He defends God, um, stands firm in his relationship with God. And in chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He doesn't curse God. Um, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The only thing that he's going to curse is is himself, his birthday, uh, that it may have never happened to begin with. Well, is this the end of Satan's attacks? Satan doesn't make any clear appearances for the rest of the book, but we still have 40 chapters to go in this book. What is Satan doing during all of that time? Well, I think we see Satan is continuing to attack Job. He begins to attack Job uh, through the mouth of his friends who come uh, initially, at least, to, to comfort Job. You know, maybe Job's wife saying, curse God and die, was a little bit too direct. Um, So now Satan is going to try something a little more subtle and a little more crafty. I I want to read some excerpts uh, from these first two speeches of Job's friends Eliphaz and Bildad here. um, And kind of summarize the message uh, of what they're saying, and, and think about what it is that Satan is, is doing through the mouth of these friends. So Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5, let's go ahead and read the first six verses of chapter 4. It says, Then Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many. And you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling. And you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you. And you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways your hope? I think it's interesting that Eliphaz calls into question the very thing that the New Testament commends Job for. (laughs) And James chapter 5 and verse 11, uh, have you not heard of the patience of Job? Well, what's the very first thing that Eliphaz mentions? Job, you've become impatient. Uh, You've helped other people, 
but now it comes to you. Why are you impatient? If you fear God, shouldn't you be confident? If you've held fast to your integrity, shouldn't you be hopeful? Look in verse 7 through 9. He says, remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. Saying, Job, the, the innocent and upright just don't experience this kind of thing. This is the harvest of one who has sown iniquity. You can't sit here and tell me that you haven't done anything to bring all of this upon yourself. This looks like what one would experience in the path of the fool, not the path of the righteous. Look down in chapter 5, starting in verse 2. He says, Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of the thorns. And the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Eliphaz is saying, Job, what what happened to your children? What happened to your harvest? What happened to all your wealth? That's the consequences of human folly. That's the kind of thing uh, that doesn't just happen. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's the natural consequences of human corruption. That's what you're experiencing. It says in verse 8, As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. Look down in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 5. It says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Job, if you would just repent, seek God, trust in him, accept his discipline, learn the lesson he's teaching you, then he would heal you and restore all your blessings. Satan has sure changed his tactics since the curse God and die uh, temptation of chapter 2, hasn't he? Now Satan is using somebody to suggest exactly the opposite, in fact. Repent, seek God. If you fear him and trust him, he wouldn't forsake you like this. Or would he? Job is being pushed into a corner where defending his own integrity is going to create some tension in his understanding of God's justice and goodness. And so as he's being accused of of sowing iniquity, of causing all of this, uh, here now he's, he's going to have to question God's justice. We see his response in chapter 6 and 7. Read with me in chapter 6, starting in verse 2. It says, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Eliphaz, you think I'm being impatient? Do you see what I've been through? Do you see what God has done to me? How can I not cry out in my anguish? Look at verse 8 through 11. 
Verse 8, Job says, Oh, that I might have my request and that God will fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hands and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Listen, I'm just begging God to end it all. I haven't turned my back on God. I haven't rejected his word. It's just that the only thing I have left to hope for, the only thing left that I I look forward to praising God for is the day of my death. I'm just not sure I can hold out much longer. Down in verse 24 through 26, he says, Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Listen, if you can show me where I went astray, what I've done wrong to cause all of this, I'll be silent and I'll listen. But what have I done? What exactly do you think it is that needs to be rebuked in my life? Is it just the fact that I'm in despair? In chapter 7, At the very end of Job's speech, look in verse 20 and 21. Now Job is speaking directly to God. It says in verse 20, If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth and you will seek me, but I shall not be. God, why? Why are you treating me like this? If there's some sin that I'm not aware of, why why not just show it to me? I would change. Why not pardon me? Why not forgive me? Why do you have to make me suffer like this? Job is just about at the end of his rope here. Uh, What little strength he has left, he's now having to use to defend his integrity against his friends. Uh, who are condemning him and claiming to do so out of a sincere concern for his soul. Job doesn't cease to seek God. In fact, throughout the book, the friends are going to speak about God. Job is going to continually speak to God. But there's little more that he can do at this point than ask why. But Satan is not done trying to wear him down. Let's look at one other speech of his friend Bildad in chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against them, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Job, you can't claim to be innocent. That calls into question the justice of God. Listen, I hate to say it, but your children must have sinned to die the way that they did. And the fact that you're still alive just means God is giving you an opportunity to plead for his mercy and repent. If you are pure and upright, then you'll have something much better than death to hope for. These are not the words of a righteous man. Look at the end of Bildad's speech in verse 20 through 22. He says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, 
nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. God would not do the kind of things you say he's done. He rejects the wicked. He destroys their tent. If you're blameless, then he'll take you by the hand and lift you up. And so we see Job's response in chapter 9 and 10. There's going to be a a lot more that we could look at in this book, but this is where we're going to um, come to our our main point. Look in chapter 9, and let's read verse 1 and 2. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be right before God? Look down in verse 14 and 15. He says, How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. So as to Bildad, listen, I understand. I understand what you're saying about God. I know that he's righteous and just. But that just doesn't seem to be what I'm experiencing. And I can't bring my case before him. I can't argue against him. I know I can't answer him. I know I'd lose. Look at verse 16 through 22. Verse 16. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Listen, I haven't done anything to cause this. I am in the right. I am blameless. I am blameless. But still he condemns me. He destroys me just like the wicked and there's nothing that I can do about it. I think this is where Job begins to break down a little bit in, uh, in what he's saying. Look in verse 23 and 24. It says, When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? God is taking pleasure in punishing the innocent. He's promoting injustice in the earth, covering the eyes of the judges. I don't have any other explanation. Look at verse 30 and 31. Verse 30, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. Again, speaking to God, saying, I'm doing everything I can to live purely and righteously. If I become defiled in this filthy pit I'm in, it's only because God put me here. Look in chapter 10, verse 1 through 7. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? 
Are your days as the days of a man or your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand? I don't know what else to say, but I can't be silent in my bitterness. God is promoting the designs of the wicked. As far as I can see, he's acting like a man. He knows that I'm not guilty, but he's determined to condemn me. And there's nothing that I can do about it. No one can intercede to deliver me from his hand. As he goes through the rest of chapter 10, he continues to ask God why. Why, God? Why would you do this to me? Well, what have we seen in Satan's attacks here? Uh, just through the first 10 chapters. Um, Job never turns against God or curses God to his face as Satan claimed he would back in chapter 1 and verse 11 and again in chapter 2 and verse 5. Even here, Job continues to cry out to God. He's seeking an answer from God and he won't seek to do so for the rest of the book. Satan does not ultimately succeed in his attacks against Job. Job never does what Satan says he would do. But I do think we see here in chapter 9 and 10 uh, that Satan uh, is able to get Job to stumble in what he says. Job does end up charging God with wrong in his distress. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 22, the very first uh, attack Satan had brought, it said in chapter 1 verse 22, and all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, that could be translated, uh, ascribe unseemliness to the Lord. Well, I think we do see in chapter 9 and 10, uh, in that language, that Job does end up charging God with wrong. In the bitterness of his soul, he pictures God as mocking at the calamity of the wicked, covering the face of the earth as judges to promote injustice, plunging Job into a pit of moral filth despite his best efforts to be pure and clean, acting like a human judge, and targeting Job to condemn him, uh, though God knows he's not guilty. I think this ultimately is what God rebukes Job for at the end of the book. Um, and Job chapter 38, if you want to turn to Job chapter 38, remember God finally does show up on the scene in the whirlwind and in verse two, it says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And so he questions Job through chapter 38, through chapter 39. At the end uh, of this speech, chapter 40 and verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? What, what is Job being condemned, uh, being rebuked for here? Uh, not doing what Satan said he would do. Job doesn't turn against God. Job doesn't curse God. Job doesn't reject God and abandon God. Um, 
And he's not being rebuked for what the friends claimed, that there was some prior sin that had brought all of this upon him. But he is being rebuked by God for what? For speaking words without knowledge. Um, For finding fault with God. For condemning God that he may be justified. In this effort to defend himself against the friends, he ends up painting God in a picture uh, that is entirely different than God's true character. Painting God as acting unjustly. Okay. I've taken you on the journey. Now, let's get to the application. The one point I said we were going to be building towards. I I want us to ask the question, what drove Job to this point? It wasn't loss. Satan had taken away his flocks and his herds, his donkeys, his camels, his servants, even all of his children, and Job worshipped God. It wasn't suffering. Satan had made his very existence a torment, brought pain upon him from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, gave him no rest night or day, and still Job stayed faithful. It wasn't evil influences. Job had, uh, Satan had tried to use Job's closest companion to turn him away from God, and Job refused to listen to her, defending God's goodness instead. What was the last straw that finally caused Job to stumble in this way? Ultimately, it was the distressing task of trying to answer the error of his friends. Do you see that? You know, the friends keep saying, Job, you can't be innocent because God is just. Job, you can't be innocent because God is just. Job, you can't be innocent because God is just. And Job is saying, no, I am innocent. I am innocent. I am innocent. God is unjust. And he's gone too far. As we think about how this applies to us, I want us to think about a concept that we might call reactionary religion. Um, And the best way I can think to, to describe this is when our perspective of God and his will is shaped more by a reaction to error than an unobstructed pursuit of truth. There may be better ways to express that, but I hope you get the point that we're driving at here. And perhaps to help you see this picture, we can use the illustration of a boat. You you may have been wondering why the background on there had a a boat on water. Um, Imagine that you're on a boat that starts to become imbalanced. Too many people are, are leaning to one side of that boat. And the boat's going to tip over. What's going to be your natural reaction? Lean the other way, right? Maybe you can grab the other side of the boat to make sure that that we don't all fall over. But if we're not careful, uh, what might that very well lead to? Well, if you've leaned a little too hard, or the people leaning the other direction start to correct their imbalance while you're still all the way over here, you're going to fall right out the other side. Do you think that ever happens in the religious world today? I think we can see it throughout history, time and time and time again. Uh, The Reformation movement is so determined to get away from the works-based religion of the Catholic Church that they start proclaiming we are saved by grace alone through faith alone and end up denying the necessity of what the Bible calls obedience to the gospel. 
Many churches are so determined to get away from the emotional hype of the charismatic movement and this kind of anti-rational, feeling-driven religion that they start stripping Christianity of emotion altogether and denying anything approaching the miraculous lest it appear we buy into the holy, rolling, gibberish-speaking, continuing revelation of the Spirit from the feeling deep in my heart. Some are so determined to get away from the Calvinistic model that presents God's grace in a way that strips man of any personal responsibility that they emphasize the necessity of our obedience to the gospel more than they emphasize the gospel itself. Making religion all about us checking the right boxes, going through the right motions, teaching the right doctrines. Some are so determined to get away from a combative or arrogant approach towards false teaching and denominationalism, that they start minimizing the seriousness of false doctrine, listening regularly to the counsel of denominational teachers without discernment, and start being more influenced by the religious world around them than they do the word of God itself. We can go on and on and on, but as we think about application for us, the primary question each of us needs to ask is what errors and negative influences from my experience, might skew my pursuit of God's will in my life. Think about all the boats that you've been in through the years, all the the churches, all the influence, all the friends, all the religious uh, interactions that you've had with other people. What, What kind of leanings scare you? Um... What, what is it um, that you might be reacting to? If Satan were trying to use this tactic in your heart, what would he be trying to accomplish? Where might he be leading you? And brethren, I will be honest with you, this scares me. <laughs> because sometimes I start thinking that I see it happening in people around me. And then I look down at myself and I realize I'm clutching the other side of the boat. We can't do that. We have to be who God wants us to be. We have to let him direct us, not a reaction to some leaning of somebody else, not some reaction of the religious world around me. It has to be genuinely seeking God for who he is, what he's revealed about himself. That's our guide. And so what's the solution? Well, first of all, if it can happen to Job, it can happen to us. If it can happen to the one that God presents as somebody who there's no one like in all the earth. Do you think Satan is using this tactic against us? You bet he is. What's the solution? Let let me use another illustration that I've used before. Um, Uh, Imagine that you're driving on a mountain road, and on one side you have a sheer drop-off, and on the other side you have oncoming traffic zooming by. You know, some people might say, well, that looks pretty steep over there. I want to get as far away from that as I can. I want to hug the side of the mountain so I can be safe. What's going to happen? I might get hit by oncoming traffic. Some people might look at that oncoming traffic zooming by and say, those people are just driving too fast. I need to move over here so that I don't get hit by them. Well, if we're not careful, we're going to fall right out the side of the mountain. How do we handle that situation? What's the right solution? 
It's not being uh, allured by the, the beauty of the scenery, uh, you know, out, out to our left or, or getting away from the, the, the car zooming by. It's not the, the feeling of safety and security of hugging the side of the mountain. It is following the path. It's focusing on the road, staying in between the lines. What, what do we need to do? We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Focus on the road. Let his word, his truth, his character be our guide. Be grounded in the Lord. Let everything we do, everything we teach, not be directed by what we see going on in the world around us, or what our past experiences have been, or where we're afraid it might be leading us. Fix our eyes on Jesus and trust in his guidance. His guidance will not lead us astray. Let everything we do be grounded in the word of Almighty God the guidance provided by his spirit. Well, that's probably the, the longest uh, one-point sermon I've ever preached. <laughs> but I hope that it'll be helpful to you, and I pray that it'll be helpful to me. Uh, what about you today? Have you been convicted? Is there something that you need to confess before these brethren? Some area that you need to ask for help to repent, to seek prayer, uh, to surrender your life to the Lord. If there's any way that we can help you in fixing your eyes on Jesus and being a disciple of his, that's why we're here. Um, If you need to make some need known before these brethren, we ask that you'll do that now by coming forward as we stand and we sing together.